Welcome to Footsteps of the Fallen, a Great War podcast with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer, Matt Dixon. For over 30 years, I've been visiting the cemeteries, memorials and battlefields of the First World War. And in this series of podcasts, I'd like to take you on a journey through France, Belgium and further afield and tell you the stories of some of the places I visited and the stories of the men who lie as the dead of the Great War. So pack up your kit bag, pour yourself a cuppa, and join me as we walk the well-trodden paths on the battlefields, following in the footsteps of the fallen. It's a pleasure to have your company. So welcome to this latest episode of Footsteps of the Fallen. And as always, thank you very much indeed for joining me. It's a pleasure to have your company. If this is the first time you've listened to one of our podcasts, you are very welcome. And it's a pleasure to have you as a listener. And if you're one of our old sweats who's coming back to listen to another episode, thank you very much indeed for your continued support. Because, of course, without you, the listeners, there wouldn't be a podcast at all. Um, The... Those of you who are regular listeners to the podcast will know that we produce and release a podcast at seven o'clock every Sunday morning. We've done uh, so uh, pretty much every Sunday for the last 12 months. And um, the observant amongst you will notice, of course, that didn't happen last Sunday. I can only apologise for that. Uh, I wasn't very well at all to the extent that I actually ended up in hospital on oxygen and we'd tubes sticking out of me and things like that and um, unfortunately producing a podcast wasn't top of my list of priorities at that particular moment in time. I have had a uh, a severe word with myself about getting my priorities sorted out and um, I'm pleased to say that we are obviously now back on track and should have a podcast for the foreseeable Sundays coming up. And uh, once again, I do apologise. But thank you to everyone who really was kind enough to reach out uh, with uh, Get Well messages via social media. It's a, a really lovely community that we've built up around the podcast and uh, in the wider World War One community as it is. And uh, it was very much appreciated, all your kind words and uh, remarks. And thank you very much indeed for those of you who took the time to reach out to inquire about my welfare. I'm uh, back, I'm fit, I'm uh, healthy, and uh, we're looking forward to producing some more episodes of Footsteps of the Fallen. So where are we in today's journey through the footsteps of the fallen? Well, we're going to do something that we haven't done for a little while, and we're going to have one of our cemetery walks, a journey through a cemetery. And for those of you who listen to the podcast often will know that my my real sort of um, love of World War One is the battlefields of Artois and the fighting in 1915. But my interest originally in World War One came from a visit to a cemetery near Vimy Ridge, um, an area that is always associated with the fighting of 1917 as to what became known as the Battle of Arras. And it's to a cemetery near Arras called Point du Jour that we're going to head today for today's cemetery walk. It's a very interesting cemetery, contains a wide variety of nationalities and some real interesting people buried within The Battle of Arras was one of the major offensives of the First World War and between the 9th of April and the 16th 
of May 1917. Uh, men from all over the British Empire attacked German trenches to the east of the city of Arras. And the ground over which the fighting took place and the date um, that it took place was really dictated by the sort of backroom politics that were going on still between the British and French high commands. There was a, a desire to sort of cooperate with the French who were, were planning a, a mass offensive of their own against the Germans on the, the Chemin des Dames, which was an area to the northwest of Reims, and this uh, was going to become known as, as the Nivelle Offensive, planned by General Robert Nivelle, the French commander. And um, whilst there was very keen to um, sort of work with the British and have sort of coordinated attacks, it was really not possible to cooperate uh, any closer with the French because the problem that the, the Allies had was that the fighting around the Somme in 1916 had caused so much devastation and destruction to the infrastructure that was really behind the lines. Um, it was going to be almost impossible to have a, a linked offensive with the flank of the French army. And it was uh, viewed that this was actually going to be very unlikely to uh, succeed. And um, because of this, the, the decision was taken to progress Allied offensives in the Arras region. But I think one of the things that it's really important to look at is that it wasn't actually the choice of Field Marshal Sir Douglas Haig, of course, who we know was the Commander-in-Chief of the British. He wanted to um, direct the main efforts of his armies up into the north around Ypres in the Ypres salient, um, mainly because he was uh, very keen to try and clear the Belgian coastline uh, because uh, the uh, naval bases on the coast were becoming uh, more and more important to the German submarine uh, offensive and um, he also really desperately wanted to capture the uh, railhead at the uh, city of Roulet which was becoming uh, more and more and more important um, to the Germans as a means of uh, logistics and supplying the western front and if he was able to capture Roulet the loss of this would be a massive blow to the Germans. Despite Haig's best laid plans and uh, his desire to launch an offensive up in Flanders, his plan was actually overruled by Lloyd George, the British Prime Minister. And he then also went to the extraordinary lengths of uh, trying to have Haig put under the direct control of Nivelle, which uh, clearly wouldn't have been an ideal situation, certainly from uh, Haig's perspective. Neither at, uh, at this particular time were the Germans doing anything to help the situation either. One of the things that we talked about quite a lot in recent podcasts is the German withdrawal to the Hindenburg line that took place after the end of the Battle of the Somme. And as well as been a sort of tactical masterstroke on the part of the Germans, it threw a real spanner in the works for the British military planning for 1917. The, the withdrawal itself was completed by the 18th of March 1917, so literally maybe about three weeks before the Arras offensive was due to take place. And, and this created some real sort of complications for the Allies, because for the British, it's uh, kind of, I suppose you'd say, dislocated their battle plans on the kind of the eve of the offensive. But for the French, the problem actually was even more serious because their entire um, military planning and attack had been based on trying to break out of a salience that no longer existed. Um, 
um, and obviously their entire planning had been put down towards us. And despite this sort of change of situation, Nivelle decided that he was actually going to carry on with the attack. And the British were to begin their operations uh, just a few days before the French. And the intention being really to um, divert German reserves away from the area around Reims to come up towards uh, Vimy in the hope that this would make things uh, easier for the French. And um, the idea really was that the French would sort of launch this attack from the south or sorry, from the east rather towards uh, Reims. A A large French force would sort of punch its way through the German lines and then be able to sort of encircle the Germans that have gone up towards Vimy um, and uh, hopefully sort of strike a knockout blow. And um, Nivelle was incredibly uh, sort of confident about this uh, planned offensive and stated actually that this was going to end the war. And um, as history has taught us, unfortunately, nothing could be further from the truth. The battlefield on which this action was due to be fought was very reminiscent of the sort of area around um, Artois. It was predominantly uh, flat, um, but up to the north of the city of Arras, uh, there is a geographical feature that was to really dominate the battlefield itself. Um, It was the Vimy Ridge, and this had been held by the Germans really since 1914, and it absolutely sort of dominated the countryside because it afforded this incredible view over the um, Allied lines. And it was the capture of Vimy Ridge that was really one of the major objectives of the fighting at the Battle of Arras itself. Um, Because really, as long as the Germans held it, they were able to see exactly what was going on. And when we look back at the fighting that took place around Arras, um, really, there were about um, sort of 10 distinct actions that took place and these sort of were very from battles as well as sort of flanking subsidiary and then kind of sort of subsequent attacks to the main plan and the first two of these actions um of the first page the battle of Vimy Ridge and uh, what was also known as the battle of the scarp took place during the period of the 9th to the 14th of April um and actually they were really considered to be a, a sort of a great success for the British and the colonial troops that took part. When the Canadians attacked uh, Vimy Ridge, they uh, successfully ejected the German um, defenders and um, further attacks that were made south of the ridge by uh, General Allenby's 3rd Army were uh, preceded by a sort of change in uh, kind of artillery tactics that comprised both uh, the use of high explosives and gas. And the attack that was made by the Third Army was was so successful um, that initially they made advances of almost up to three and a half miles. And this was the greatest advance that had been achieved on the Western Front since trench warfare began in 1914. And the problem was, was that this sort of gave this false sense of, um, of the situation to the Allies. And it sort of almost this op- offered this opportunity of that which the Allies had been waiting for for almost three years, the opportunity to have cavalry pouring forward across. And cavalry were actually rushed forwards in the hope of them sort of um, being able to uh, uh, kind of progress their way through this gap and attack the enemy's lines of uh, communication. Um, But as was so often the case, this initial sort of uh, euphoria of success was uh, really sort of a a way of hiding the uh, the problems that were going to come very quickly afterwards. 
And whilst the attack on Vimy um, had been very, very successful, there were further actions that took place further south of this. There were attacks by the British and the Australian troops of um, General Goff's 5th Army at Bullecourt on the 11th of April. There was um, a, then a, a counterattack by the Germans um, of uh, General von Falkenhausen's army counterattacks at uh, Lannicourt on the 15th of April. And both of these offences sort of ground down into a stalemate. This kind of stalemate was used by both the Germans and the Allies as a kind of an opportunity to uh, kind of uh, revamp and recuperate and sort of uh, bring in some new uh, troops to relieve those men who'd been fighting or absolutely exhausted. Um, whilst the um, Allies used the opportunity, as I say, to kind of rotate new units in, what the Germans used this as an opportunity was to flood the area with reinforcements. And once this kind of relief of the British had taken place, the next phase of the operation took place, which was the, the second Battle of the Scarp, which was fought by General Allenby's 3rd Army between the 23rd and the 24th of April. And further to the north, um, General Henry Horne's First Army was committed to a, a an attack at a, at a place called La Culotte, which was on the 23rd of um, April. And they worked very closely with the Third Army and they took part in what became known as the Battle of of Arla between the 28th and the 29th of April. And this really was the much more significant fourth stage of the wider offensive itself. Whilst these attacks that uh, were taking place may have uh, appeared initially sort of fairly successful, it was something of a Pyrrhic victory because really they were successful only to the point of view that they relieved pressure on the French, whose own offensive, who were further down the south, um, had begun on the 16th of April, and it had run into serious, serious trouble almost as soon as it had um, begun. And whilst uh, it's not to say that the French didn't make some advances, um, they absolutely did, but what they hadn't anticipated was the sheer scale of casualties that were going to be inflicted on them. And it certainly wasn't this knockout blow that had been promised by Nivelle before the offensive began. The uh, casualty count was absolutely huge. And the problems really came for the French that the kind of the um, the contrast between the promises that were being made by the French generals and the reality of the fighting caused the total breakdown of French morale. And this manifested itself in the most extraordinary of ways on the 3rd of May 1917, when men of the French 2nd Division simply threw down their rifles and refused to go into attack. It was effectively mutiny in the French army. And it was in real uh, danger, actually, that the French army as a whole was going to completely disintegrate and their offensive was abandoned on the 9th of May. Despite these uh, mutinies and the problems within the French army, um, the French actually still held over two-thirds of the Western Front. And what this meant was that Haig uh, really had to kind of keep pressure on the German forces and um, in uh, by doing so to try and prevent any further attacks against the French because really they weren't in any position to be sort of resisting um, any sort of big German attack. And the situation, the kind of the political situation, wasn't helped by the revolution that had taken place in Russia and um, what happened um, was that the the relief 
of the um, Allied armies really came at a price to Haig's own men. And the Third Army was compelled to fight yet another battle, the Fifth parts of the offensive which became known as the third battle of the scarp between the third and fourth of may and then there was another major action that they were involved in which was the capture of the village of ruhr between the 13th and the 14th of may and then finally uh, general goff's fifth army on the third uh, to the 16th of may took uh, another operation which was the battle of bulacor and it was really when the battle of bulacor came to an end that the arras offensive as we know it came to an end. The Point du Jour was a uh, house that sat on the road that ran from Saint-Laurent-Blagny to uh, Gavrel. And um, when the uh, area, it's it sat just outside the village of Athier, was, was attacked and captured by men of the 9th Scottish Division on the 9th of April. The Germans had converted Point du Jour, the house, into a formidable strong point, a redoubt as they came to know it. And it was really um, a great bit of uh, fighting that uh, actually sort of successfully captured it as part of this wider successful operation that took place on the 9th of April 1917. The cemetery itself was begun actually in um, April 1917. It was originally two cemeteries. They were made on the right-hand side of the um, road that ran from uh, Saint-Laurent-Blagny. And the first one was called Point du Jour Number 1 Cemetery and then Point du Jour Military Cemetery itself, which is the one that really sort of still exists to this day. Before we begin our visit to the cemetery, we're actually going to begin in the field just to the side of it, where there stands an enormous stone obelisk, which is the memorial to the 9th Scottish Division. The memorial itself is a, a huge sort of monolith, or I suppose cairn you might describe it as, standing almost 30 feet in height. Uh, it was designed originally by a man called Ian Hamilton, and the original memorial was unveiled on the 9th of April 1922. Uh, its original location was in the middle of the road that ran from Arras to Douai, but as the uh, sort of uh, the world moved on and the road became far, far more busy than it used to be. It became completely impractical for it to be remaining in the middle of this road. And it was actually then moved in 2006 to its current location, just at the very side of Point du Jour Cemetery. And it's a very appropriate place for it to be because there are so many men from the 9th Scottish Division who lie in the cemetery itself. The the cairn itself, I say, is 30 feet in height. It's made from large blocks of Scottish granite and it bears the battle honours of the division that fought during the Great War. Uh, the division itself was known or was colloquially as the Jocks and Box Division because it was made up of men from Scotland, but it was also supplemented by the inclusion of men of the South African infantry who fought throughout them. And there are 26 granite boulders that uh, stand around the memorial itself. And they bear the names of units which served in the uh, division from 1915 through to 1918. And there were four regiments of South African infantry which were part of the 9th Division during the Great War. 
The Battle of Arras uh, obviously involved uh, many, many, many different uh, regiments and battalions and brigades and that sort of thing. But it is uh, predominantly a, a Scottish battle. Of the 120 battalions that were involved, 44 of them were Scottish regiments. And this area, as I said, is dotted with sort of memorials and uh, reminders of the contribution that these men of Scotland played to. Just uh, literally up the road from where we're standing at the moment by the 9th Scottish Division is uh, another memorial to the men of the Seaforth Highlands. This magnificent Celtic cross which stands in the middle of uh, fields on the uh, road just outside Fampu, uh, say so about uh, about six seven hundred metres from where we're standing at the moment. The cemetery of Fandujor contains seven hundred and ninety four Commonwealth servicemen of World War One and uh, four hundred and one of these burials are unidentified. There are a number of what we call special memorials who commemorate uh, 22 casualties who are known or believed to be buried amongst the men who lie within them. There's also another special memorial that recording the name of six casualties who were buried in other cemeteries whose graves were destroyed by shellfire. And the cemetery itself of Plan as I said, was originally begun during April 1917. And towards the end of the war, there were about 86 men who were buried in here. And what uh, happened, as so often was the case after the war, it was used as a concentration cemetery for a large number of the smaller cemeteries that littered the battlefield, where men, when the battlefields were cleared at the end of World War One, were brought in and were concentrated into these larger cemeteries. And it's a cemetery that's very reflective, not just of the global sort of nature of the conflict, um, but also the rank and file who served and fought during in this sector of the battlefield. There are relatively few senior officer casualties in there. There's no Victoria Cross winners. Um, it's just very representative of the infantry units of the line who held this sector during 1917 through to the end of the war in 1918. The first grave of note that we come to in the cemetery is of a man from New Zealand by the name of Lieutenant William Durant. And he was a member of the New Zealand Engineers and he was killed in action on the night of the 14th of September 1916. And the circumstances of his death are really quite tragic. The New Zealand engineers were involved with men of the Cheshire Regiment who were holding this section of line at the time and a trench raid had been planned in the dead of night to uh, capture a German prisoner and uh, the problem that the men of the Cheshire Regiment and the New Zealanders faced was that the barbed wire that the Germans had in this section was particularly thick and when we talk uh, we've talked a lot during this podcast about uh, the ubiquitous barbed wire that one found on the battlefield and it's a sort of classic battlefield uh, artifact that one finds quite often when walking the battlefields and we kind of associate barbed wire nowadays with that which we see on sort of modern farms um, but the barbed wire that was employed by the Germans was very very different this was metal that was as thick as your little finger and contained sort of inch long viciously sharp fronds and any sort of um, uh, snagging of your clothing or your person on these uh, was a real problem because it, one soon became very, very entangled. And one of the things that the British had tried to do since the war broke out was to come up with an effective way of how to clear a path 
through barbed wire. As we've seen in some of our previous podcasts, uh, artillery was uh, generally the uh, best way to do it. And it was discovered that shrapnel was far more effective at clearing holes in barbed wire than high explosives. High explosives would just have a tendency to throw the barbed wire up into the air and it would uh, become more and more tangled like spaghetti as it came down, whereas shrapnel um, had the ability to actually cut through the barbed wire. But of course, this relied on having an exceptionally accurate artillery bombardment to be able to do this so that our shrapnel would hit at the exact point where the barbed wire was the thickest. And uh, as I said, this was a very difficult thing to do. So men were constantly thinking of alternative ways as to how to clear gaps through German barbed wire. And one of the approaches that they used was through the use of what was called a Bangalore torpedo. Any of you who've ever seen the war film Saving Private Ryan will uh, remember the uh, incredible opening scene on Omaha Beach where uh, they're trying to clear through the obstacles and use a Bangalore torpedo. And what this was was basically these five foot long lengths of uh, metal that had a thread on the end so they could be screwed together to form a very long, very long device which was packed full of explosives and it could be sort of pushed via um, the ground. They had a nose cone on them, which meant that it could be pushed through the earth. And the idea was that it could be uh, put um, under German barbed wire without their men actually having to get too close to it. And during this trench raid that took place in 1916, the men from the New Zealand engineers, there was a Lieutenant Durant and eight sappers, along with the men from the Cheshire Regiment who were going to undertake the raid itself. And they crept out into no man's land where they assembled their Bangalore torpedoes. And it was at this point, uh, apparently, what happened was that one of the men that was involved in this, one of the sappers, uh, apparently sneezed. And uh, this alerted the Germans to the presence of men. And they opened up a very, very heavy rifle and machine gun fire. And Durant and his men found themselves in a shell hole when uh, Durant crept forward towards the German wire with the intention that his men would pass the torpedo up to him. Unfortunately, during the gunfight that took place, a German bullet struck the Bangalore torpedo as it was being passed out of the shell hole and it caused it to explode. And the men who were in the shell hole were sadly obliterated by the explosion. Um, Durant and one other man did successfully make it to the German wire, but sadly they were never seen again. And for the rest of the night, um, his men went out into no man's land in a desperate attempt to try and find him, see if he was still alive. And in fact, his uh, grave was not discovered until the following year of the April 1917, when the village of Saint Laurent Blagny was actually finally captured. And it was discovered that he had been killed and buried by the Germans. Uh, he was buried in a mass grave with an NCO, a private, and uh, they managed to identify, the Germans rather managed to identify him and marked his grave accordingly. And after the war had finished, his body was moved and he was reinterred in Point du Jour Cemetery. The raid itself was an absolute disaster. The, cash, the Cheshire Regiment suffered very very heavy casualties indeed. And I think when you look at uh, what happened to Durant, it's a very, very sad story in a war that's full of sad tales of what happened to the men. One of the things that I always find the most poignant whenever I visit a cemetery is where you see groups of men from the same regiment who all share the same date of death. And there is this incredible poignancy to this idea that you were comrades in life. And so you find yourself as 
comrades in death. And uh, as I was walking around the cemetery, I came across a group of graves of men of the 1st Battalion, the Cambridgeshire Regiment, who all died together on the same date, the 14th of October 1918. They're all buried in plot two of the cemetery and they are private George Thompson, Charles Laws, Matthew Shaw, Edward Howard and John Tingley. And um, obviously it's always interesting when you look at these sort of uh, communal, well not communal, these groups of graves of men as to what actually happened to them and how they came to lose their lives. And there's a certain special degree of poignancy, I think, because of how close to the end of the war these men were, less than a month until the war ended. The men themselves all lost their lives during an attack that took place on a small village called Obi. And uh, this was uh, just a, a, a tiny little hamlet just to the north of Douai. And when you look through the uh, uh, battalion war diaries and you look at what happened with the plan for the attack, there's a, a slightly concerning um, references made from the artillery who were due to be supporting this, that they were very concerned about their ability to provide proper support. And they warned that their guns were so uh, worn and the barrels were so worn that there may very well be problems with shells firing short. And the other problem as well that the artillery had is that they weren't providing covering fire from behind or in front. They were providing covering fire from the flanks, which made their task uh, doubly difficult, especially when they weren't able to guarantee whether their shells were going to be falling in the right place. And the men of the 1st Cambridgeshire Regiment were due to attack the northern end of the village and they were to be supported by men of the 1st Worcestershire Regiment who were to due to attack the southern part of the village. And in principle, it sounds like quite a straightforward sort of idea, but the problem really came was that each battalion uh, belonged to an entirely different division and therefore they were operating under an entirely different line of command. And it seems extraordinary when you think about this situation that there wasn't some way to have this kind of unified system of command for people who were involved in this assault so that there was this uh, this sort of um, unity of purpose, but there wasn't. And uh, what happened when the attack went in, the worst fears of the artillerymen came true and shells did indeed begin to fall short on the men of the Cambridgeshire Regiment. Whilst we don't know exactly what happened, it is highly likely that uh, some of these men were probably killed by their own artillery fire. Um, but there was also a very heavy German counter bombardment was put down on it. And uh, they say the men of the Cambridgeshire Regiment suffered very, very heavy casualties indeed. And the Worcesters to the south didn't fare much better. They were forming up in trenches when their uh, Brigade HQ and the format trenches were subjected to once again another very heavy German artillery bombardment, which caused many, many problems. And a patrol was sent out of men of the Cambridgeshire Regiment to go out to try and ascertain whether the village had actually been uh, captured or not. And um, what uh, they weren't aware of was that the majority of the men had already been killed or wounded. And there was only one way really to get to the village, which was across a small wooden bridge, which covered a dike that ran along this part of the battlefield. And the Germans had destroyed this. And uh, they watched the engineers rebuilding a small wooden bridge. And all they did simply was zero their machine guns on this um, sort of uh, bottleneck that was created because it really was the only place that the men could go. And they simply mowed the men of the Cambridgeshire Regiment down um, like ducks at a shooting gallery at a fairground. 
ground. And it's an absolute sort of disastrous uh, attack um, that took place. And uh, what happened was the attack sort of ground down into a standstill and a request was made once again for British artillery to support the action. But the shells once again fell short and the men who'd worked so hard to try and capture the village of Obi became casualties to uh, what we, I suppose, we'd now call friendly firing. There is obviously no such thing uh, or kind of a blue on blue situation. And it seems quite likely that these uh, these men were probably killed by the artillery fire that fell down on the men. It's a terribly sad and poignant way to go. I mean, any death in war is a tragedy, but to die at the hands of your own side makes it uh, an even more bitter pill to swallow, I should imagine, for the families had they found out what had actually happened. For those of you who listen to this podcast uh, on a regular basis, you'll know that I quite often refer to sort of personal memoirs. Uh, It's something that I'm very fond of reading because I think uh, obviously it offers that kind of sense of originality and um, and um, sort of first-hand experience of men who were there and there have been obviously some some remarkable um, personal memoirs and personal narratives written of fighting during First World War and one of the ones that really um, sort of always sticks in my mind as a particularly good example of this was written by a man by the name of Guy Chapman. Now he was a, uh, a major. He awarded. He was awarded an OBE and an MC, and he wrote a um, a uh, memoir of his time serving in the First World War that was called uh, "A Passionate Prodigality." It's one of the first personal memoirs that I read of uh, anyone who actually served during World War One, and he recalls an incident that took place when he was having dinner with some fellow officers in uh, April 1917 in the village of Isel Les Amo, and they were talking about the death of a, uh, a chaplain that had occurred um, on the 23rd of April. The chaplain's name was the Reverend James Thomas Leeson, and he was chaplain fourth class who was serving with the 13th Battalion of the Royal Fusiliers. Uh, he lies buried in Point du Jour Cemetery. And um, we're very fortunate, I suppose, in one sense, that in uh, A Passionate Prodigality, Chapman actually tells us what happened to the Reverend Leeson. And he says as follows. Poor old Leeson has gone. He was far too old, you know. He ought never to have gone up. But you know what these Catholic padres are like? His hand was blown off by a shell and he collapsed and died of shock on the spot. One of the things that we've talked about in this podcast was the remarkable uh, evolution of war in the air and the changes that this uh, underwent throughout the fighting. And as I was walking through the cemetery, I came across the headstone of a man by the name of Lieutenant Oliver Cyril Godfrey, who was a pilot in the Royal Flying Corps and who lost his life in 1916. And when I started to look at uh, his uh, name in the cemetery register, I discovered that he was a fascinating and a remarkable man, a very talented uh, sportsman before the war broke out. And it's some kind of no surprise, really, I think, that he ended up in the Royal Flying Corps because he was a man for whom adventure was second nature. He, uh, he loved the thrill of uh, motorsport and uh, as I said it seems sort of fairly obvious really as to why he may very well have ended up in the uh, Royal Flying Corps and 
Oliver Godfrey himself was uh, born in London in 1887 and his uh, father was an, an artist. He worked as a, a painter and an engraver and actually had some work uh, exhibited at the Royal Academy. Um, but his um, father sort of uh, decamped off to Australia before 19. 19- Oh, one, um, and his, uh, Godfrey's mother remarried and, uh, he, uh, lived with his, uh, mother and, uh, stepfather for the whole of his life. And, uh, he worked at, um, a, uh, motorcycle factory in, uh, Finchley. He was employed as a motor spindler, which is, uh, another name we would, uh, I suppose commonly call for a machinist. And, um, what he discovered at the age of 16 was the thrill of riding motorbikes and um this was sort of this new invention and um i there were many many young men around the united kingdom who were sort of taken with this uh thrilling fast uh vibrant machine that gave them the opportunity to obviously travel wide distances but also as i say the thrill of speed in um as well. And one of the things that, um, uh, Godfrey discovered that actually he was a very, very talented motorcycle rider indeed. And he entered lots and lots of competitions, including the Isle of Man, the TT race on the Isle of Man. And he entered uh, various of them. And in 1911, at his fourth attempt, he actually won the Isle of Man. TT race itself. Um, he, um, did a race every year up until 1914. Um, but, um, unfortunately he had to, um, abandon in 1912 and, uh, he had uh, mechanical problems in 1913 and, um, he, uh, eventually came second in the 1914 edition. And, um, he was, uh, somewhat remarkable for that period of time because all of his wins took place riding the, a um riding a bike by the manufacturer Indian and uh, he was one of the very few riders who stuck with the uh, manufacturer season after season when he won the Isle of Man TT in 1911 Godfrey was one of five riders who were supported by the Indian factory to enter the TT and um, he uh, showed his sort of skills really because obviously back in this day unlike uh, the modern races which are run on uh, you know tarmac Adam roads and that sort of thing back at this time this was unpaved country roads which made up the Isle of Man course and it was very very common that uh, riders would fall or crash and um, in 1911 Godfrey rode absolutely remarkably and he managed to finish the entire race without coming off his bike once at all during uh, any of the racing around the island. And he clearly was an extremely talented rider. He was described in the official race report as being a rider who was diminutive in size, but was a bunch of muscles and nerves and was an absolutely magnificent rider. And as I said, I think someone who uh, sort of seeks the thrill that comes from motorsports, it's no real surprise, therefore, when he became uh, a member of the Royal Flying Corps. And when war broke out in 1914, he enlisted into the Royal Flying Corps as a pilot. And he um, 
used a, a sort of um, a, a fairly common route that was taken by young men. He um, gained a qualification via the Royal Aero Club and he got his aviator certificate flying in uh, what was called a, a BT Wright biplane, which was uh, based at Hendon Airfield, which of course now the site of the RAF Museum. And he qualified as a pilot in January 1916. And one of the things that the Royal Flying Corps did was that they allowed the Royal Aero Club to provide pilot certification. And in total, actually, the um, Royal Aero Club trained over 6,000 pilots during the First World War. It's a remarkable number and um, obviously a very useful tool for the um, Royal Flying Corps to have this sort of uh, system of training and development for prospective pilots. Godfrey himself was posted to 27 Squadron of the Royal Flying Corps and he arrived first of all in France in March 1916 and by June he was based near the town of Fienvier which was 10 miles to the west of Albert on the Somme and about uh, at this stage about 15 miles or so behind the front line. The um, airfield that the men used was little more than a, a cow pasture that had had a runway cut on it and the men, uh, the flyers and uh, obviously the ground crew as well. They all slept in bell tents around the outside of the field and the squadron itself was equipped almost exclusively with single-seater fighter scouts. It, uh, they were planes called the Martinside G100 and these had the nickname of the elephant uh, because it was extremely big and extremely unmaneuverable. It responded uh, really very, very slowly to pilot input and uh, clearly this was a plane that was utterly unsuitable to work as a fighter so the elephant had a, a very long flight range and it was uh, deployed predominantly as a bomber and a, a reconnaissance scout and it flew missions up and down the western front from Bapome down as far as Combray and across to the village or town of Douai. One of the things that 27 Squadron became uh, very well known for actually was their success at running bombing missions and uh, this really sort of became their main role from July 1916 onwards and the um, one of their primary targets was attacking enemy airfields and uh, they attacked a German airfields at uh, Bertencourt, Velu, Hervilly, etc. And it was at this stage, around uh, sort of the middle of July 1916, that Godfrey joined the squadron. And it was a relatively um, sort of quiet time for British airmen, where um, actually, when you looked at it against this sort of the normal run of the mill flying, the chances of survival were actually still quite uh, reasonable. Um, and at the start of the third Battle of Somme, which began on the 15th of September, the squadron was tasked with attacking uh, the um, HQ of General Karl von Bülow, um, the German commander near uh, Bourlon Chateau. And then they were also required to uh, bomb uh, trains that were running around Combray and Effehy and Ribacourt. Um and everything went particularly well for them until around about August 1916 when the German army reorganised its air service and they produced what were called the new Hunter Squadrons. And uh, this was a, a sort of remarkable turnaround um, because what it did was it... Um, these squadrons became kind of, the, I suppose you call it, the pioneers of specialist fighter aircraft. And the sort of first Hunters were put together as part of what was called Jagstaffel Two, and they were formed at Lannicourt under the command of a man called Oswald Bolker, who was uh, Germany's 
top scoring pilot at the time. And what uh, Bolka had the opportunity to do was almost hand pick and hand recruit the best pilots of the German Air Force. And he recruited to come and join him a man by the name of Manfred von Richthofen, who of course was to go on and become the Red Baron and uh, another exceptional pilot man by the name of Erwin Berm. And if you are interested in Berm, then please have a look through our back catalogue of podcasts at uh, our episode, The Life and Death of a British Airman. And uh, you can hear all about uh, Erwin Berm and his uh, his uh, fairly sort of tragic story and uh, really what a remarkable fighter pilot he was. It was the development of these German hunting squadrons that really, I suppose, sort of drew the curtain down on the honeymoon period for the Royal Flying Corps. Um, And it was during a bombing mission that was being carried out by six elephant aircraft of the squadron that um, took place towards Combray on the 23rd of September that Oliver Godfrey lost his life. They were en route towards Combray when they were ambushed by Bolker's squadron. And it seems most likely that uh, Godfrey was shot down by a man by the name of Hans Raymond, who was one of the um, one of the German pilots who actually was to lose his life in the same action under uh, remarkable sort of uh, circumstances. And when you look at the history of the 27th Squadron, it describes what happens on that morning. And I'm going to read from the history now. On September the 22nd, bombing raids were carried out on the Kivrechat railway station. One pilot, seeing that his bombs had failed to explode, proceeded to strafe the engine driver of a train attempting to leave the station quickly. Later in the day, 56 20-pound bombs were scattered in Havering Corps wood, suspected of harbouring German infantry. The following day, 27 Squadron sent six elephants on an offensive patrol over Combray, setting out at 8.30am. All six were attacked over Combray by five scouts of Jagstaffel II, led by Oswald Bolker in person, with disastrous results for the Martinsides. Sergeant H. Bellaby in Martinside 7841 was shot down almost immediately by Manfred von Richthofen. This was his second official victory. While within seconds, two more elephants piloted by 2nd Lieutenants E.J. Roberts and O.C. Godfrey were destroyed by Lieutenants Erwin Böhm and Hans Reimann. Recovering from the shock of the first German onslaught, the remaining three Martinsides continued the fight despite being outnumbered and outclassed by superior German aircraft. Lieutenant L.F. Forbes, having exhausted all of his ammunition, made one last defiant gesture by deliberately flying head-on into the Albatross piloted by Hans Raymond and ramming the German scout in a near head-on collision. Raymond spun to earth and his death in a crushed cockpit. But Forbes, in spite of one collapsed wing with aileron control shattered, managed to nurse his crippled Martin side back towards base and land successfully. Godfrey had only been in France for a period of three months when he lost his life and he was one of 252 officers and crew and over 800 planes who were lost during the four-month campaign in the summer and autumn of 1916. And it was during this period that the RFC actually lost a staggering 75% of its men in 
the battle. And um, when Oz, when Godfrey was uh, recovered, his body was recovered by the Germans and he was buried. And it was found after the war and he was moved and reinterred in Point Jour Cemetery, where he lies to this day. As we walk round the cemetery as well, there's another grave to a member of the um, Royal Flying Corps who was serving actually um, not uh, in the Air Force, but uh, during the infantry at the time of his death. And he was an incredibly colourful character. He was known universally by his men as Pregnant Percy uh, on account of his uh, sort of uh, pigeon-like barrel-shaped chest. And his name was Lieutenant Colonel Charles James Burke, DSO. And he was a member of the Royal Flying Corps attached to the 2nd Royal Irish Regiment when he was killed by a shell on the 9th of April in 1917 at the age of 35. And um, Burke actually was a man who stood at the real, the forefront of aviation. He was one of the most leading and influential figures in uh, aviation before World War One. But he'd had actually a very long and very distinguished military career. He'd uh, served with uh, absolute distinction during the South African War and um, sort of excelled himself as a very committed and very talented uh, soldier and a very talented officer. And in um, September of 1903, he uh, gained a commission out of the militia and was put into the Royal Irish Regiment. And then between um, July 1905 and right up till 1909, he actually went on to serve with the West African Frontier Force. And this was a a sort of a a very difficult uh, posting. Obviously, uh, Africa at this point was a very underdeveloped country. And whilst it offered great sort of adventure and a great deal of excitement for men, it was a very uh, difficult posting for men to have because of the lack of sanitation, the lack of transport, and the lack of logistics. Um, and it was in, um, he served there in Africa until 1909, before in 1910, he went to France. And it was whilst he was in France that he learned to fly. And uh, he qualified as a pilot before he headed back to England, where he worked for some time as an instructor at the Army Balloon School. Um, he um, continued to uh, fly uh, whenever possible, and he holds the distinction of actually being the uh, pilot who flew the first aircraft that was ever purchased by the British government. Despite his obvious talents and his obvious ability, he was very seriously wounded during a crash in January of 1911. And it was at this time he was probably the single most experienced military aviator in the whole of the British Army. And he wrote a a series of sort of doctrines about flying and about pilot training um, that are still used today as part of uh, flight training. He wrote uh, various pieces on uh, flying that were published in such um, eminent uh, publications as the Times and he wrote a piece also for the Royal United Services Institute and one of the things that he was a very firm advocate of was the potential for aircraft to carry out uh, reconnaissance on behalf of the army in the way that really only before this cavalry had been able to do. In May 
1912, Burke joined the Royal Flying Corps and he was very soon appointed to be commanding officer of number two squadron. And uh, he was involved in the pre-war army manoeuvres. He uh, was responsible for commanding uh, a squadron of aircraft that were involved in the army manoeuvres. And on the 1st of August, he suffered yet another air crash in which he was yet again seriously wounded but he uh, managed to survive this and uh, when war broke out in August 1914 he remained with number two squadron and on the 14th of August 1914 he took number two squadron out to France um, and really it's a little bit unfortunate for him because um, really by rights he ought to have been the first combatant of the British Expeditionary Force to land in France, but the honour was denied to him by one of his squadron, who was um, the um, even more colourful and wildly eccentric Irishman, and a man by the name of Captain Hubert Dunsterville Harvey Kelly, um, who uh, took a bit of a shortcut when the squadron reached the French coast. Uh, he went inland, uh, Harvey Kelly went inland, um, uh, cutting across northern France instead of following the coast, and he landed just as Burke and the rest of the squadron were approaching the airfield. Burke had a uh, very distinguished uh, career. He was uh, very, very helpful um, as part of the flying that was done during the retreat from Mons with the information that was passed back. And uh, he was actually uh, mentioned in dispatches in October 1914 by Sir John French. And uh, the following month, he was appointed the commanding officer of Number 2 Wing, which was based at Saint-Omer on the French coast. And um, much to his chagrin, instead of uh, being frontline flying, he was appointed um, as responsible for the recruitment drive to gain new pilots and um, his experience of military aviation led to him being appointed in 1916 as the commandant of the Central Flying School back in England and um, whilst as much as he loved flying he missed the thrill of frontline action and he became really sort of uh, I think bored is probably the best way to describe it and um, he believed um, very much that his place was back with his old regiment the Royal Irish or even just actually with another branch of the infantry so he resigned his role as the head of the flying school and uh, went back to France where he was appointed in command of the 1st Battalion, the East Lancashire Regiment. And he was actually killed in action on the 9th of April 1917 on the opening day of the Battle of Arras. He'd been awarded a DSO in February 1915 um, in um relation to services that he'd performed for the Royal Flying Corps in connection with operations. And he was um, a member of the Meteorological Society, the Royal United Service Institute and various other things. And as I said, he was a, he was a very strange looking man, a very weird build and his sort of barrel chest and uh, very thin legs, as I said, led him to be called affectionately Pregnant Percy by his men. The cemetery at Point du Jour also contains some burials from the Second World War, but it was in 2002 that Point du Jour really came back into public consciousness. There was a major building project took place to build an industrial estate in this part of the Arras battlefield. And when the pre-archaeological digs were taking place, 
French archaeologists uncovered a remarkable mass grave of British soldiers. And um, this is not an unusual occurrence when um, excavations are taking place on the old battlefields. But what was truly remarkable about this grave was that it contained 20 bodies and the bodies had all been buried still wearing their boots, which was quite unusual at that time. But most extraordinarily of all was that the men had been buried linked arm in arm with each other. Some of the bodies were found to contain shoulder titles of the Lincolnshire Regiment and uh, the evidence suggested that these were probably men of the 10th Battalion, the Lincolnshire Regiment, the Grimsby Chums. And when you look at the uh, battalion records for the 9th of April 1917, the battalion lost 24 soldiers, of whom 20 were never found. And what was quite interesting amongst these bodies was that one of them was buried slightly uh, away to one side, which suggested possibly that it may have been an officer and this does actually correspond with the records for the men that were lost during that day. Um, sadly it wasn't possible to identify any of the remains but they were the Lincolnshire Regiment were definitely fighting in this part of the Arras battlefield and the damage to the bodies suggests that the men may very well have been killed by artillery fire and probably British artillery fire that landed on them as they were advancing towards the German lines. And once the uh, due diligence and process had been undertaken, the men were reburied in Point du Jour Cemetery. And just as we said once before, just as they were comrades in life, so they now lie as comrades in death. I hope you've enjoyed this look at Point du Jour Cemetery and I think what it does is it goes to show that every cemetery, no matter how many graves are in there, has a story to tell and maybe the next time you visit a Commonwealth War Cemetery you'll take some time out to have a look through the um, cemetery register at some of the names and some of the men who are buried there and may look at trying to find out some more stories about the men who lie at peace in the fields of France to this day. I hope you've enjoyed this latest episode of Footsteps of the Fallen with me, battlefield researcher, historian and writer Matt Dixon. And if you'd like to keep updated with what we are up to and what's happening, please don't forget to follow us on Twitter, where you can find us at uh, footsteps underscore pod, or you can have a look on our Instagram feed, which is footsteps of the fallen blog you'll find on Instagram. Uh, we've also got obviously our website, which you can find uh, everything to do with the podcast and pictures and uh, a blog and things like that. And you can find that at footstepsofthefallen.com. And if you have enjoyed what you are listening to and would like to help support the creative process, then please don't uh, hesitate to do so. If you go to our website, footstepsthefallen.com, and look at the page marked Support Us, you can either head to buymeacoffee.com forward slash footsteps pod and uh, make a donation there, or you can go to patreon.com footsteps of the fallen and uh, any help or assistance that you may be able to provide would be gratefully received so all it leaves me now to do is to bid you farewell and thank you very much for your company as we continued our journey walking in the footsteps of the fallen it's been a pleasure to have your company 
Thank you and goodbye.